remember looking at the heart on the big screen, and he's gone and he's looking at it. I remember him saying, wow. I said, uh, Dr. Canner, is that, is that a good wow? Is that a bad wow? And he, he sort of just paused. He just said, uh, I think that's a good wow. You, you know, you're just a really lucky, you're a lucky man. You're a really lucky guy. The of the child, okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Australia has coastlines that span more than 34,000 kilometres. So not surprisingly, swimming is a very popular sport and pastime. Open water swimming comes with many risks. There's always the dreaded danger of encountering a shark. But there are other dangers such as stings, overheating, hypothermia, exhaustion and also physical injury from boats, other swimmers or objects in the water that you can't see. John Muir has always been a strong swimmer and in his mid-twenties he started to swim on a regular basis in the local pool, rivers, lakes and in the ocean, which is just 10 minutes away from his home in Perth. And just as a daily jogger or runner decides to conquer marathons, over time John started to swim competitively and take on long-distance open water swimming, where his swims in the ocean take up to six hours. Now, as a disclaimer, I had some technical issues in this episode, and this has impacted sound quality slightly. Hang in there. The story is incredible and well worth the listen. Hi, John. Hi, Lana. What do you enjoy most about swimming? I just love the medium of, you know, of water. I think it's, I like just floating in the water, you know, and what it's got to offer too, you know, in terms of marine life and everything, if you're you're in the ocean and then the, and even the pool, um, as a kid, I, I was just like just hopping in the pool, jumping in the pool and just having fun. So it sounds like there's a bit of a mindfulness kind of stress-relieving benefit to swimming for you. Would that be right? Yeah, oh, certainly. Yeah, particularly, you know, as you, as you get older too and you sort of have more responsibilities, it's, um, it's a bit of an escape too, isn't it? You know, it's just you can just switch off and or else you can think about things as well, I guess, but it, it can be a great escape and you're doing something physical as well, which is what I like to do. I, I enjoy that. When you swim in the ocean, do you swim with goggles or with your eyes open? Yeah, no, I swim with goggles. Uh, I wear contact lenses, so I, I, I need to wear goggles. And, I and yeah, I like to be able to see what's going on. There's, there's a lot to see. Do you professionally train to improve your technique? Professionals probably, that's a bit, that's probably too serious a word for me. I'm very much an amateur, and but look, I do train in squads. I think, like anything, it's you know, technique is important. Even an old guy like me, I guess, can can still improve their stroke. You know, 
it's more about the camaraderie and the people that you know and meet and, and it makes it fun. Now, could you explain how open water swimming races work? Because um, I've never been in an open water race. How does it work? Yeah, um, they can be of varying distances. Some of them can have multiple distances at, you know, at the one event. I guess they, they typically could be even as short as 500 metres uh, up to 10 kilometres. Um, and I guess if you're talking you know, marathon or ultra marathon, they, they can be distances greater than that. But you're swimming uh, around a course, which is marked by, by boys in the water. And sometimes it can be a single lap of a course, or sometimes it can be multiple laps, depending on the distance that you're going to do. But a lot of this open water swims in Perth are sort of from that two and a half kilometres, five kilometres, and then, you know, um, sort of up to 10Ks, really. There's a, a series of events in, in Perth, and I sort of compete in that in my in my age group, which they call the Super Legends age group. It's just it's, it's the old guys, you know, and um, grumpy old men division. Now you're not alone in the water, right? Um, like there's some sort of way that they oversee each swimmer. They they set you off in waves. Some events can have you know up to I guess you know can have hundreds or even up to thousand or a couple of thousand people competing in an event. They set you off in waves according to ability. See, you you swim in groups with people of similar speed. They have very good water water safety. There are people out at each of the points in rib boats um, or on skis. There'll typically be a surf club personnel that that look after the safety side of the event. They're really work well run in that regard. You know, um, mm. they're, they're utilising drones these days as well. And in Perth too, they sort of have choppers that fly up and down the beaches, you know, looking for looking for big objects with teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Look out for renegades like you swimming in the open water where sharks can be found. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Are there any special things that you need to wear or do to your body for a long open water swim? Most swimmers probably wear, you know, um, your Speedo type bathers or your Jammer type bathers, but you can also wear race suits and they've got to be compliant. So, so you wear these suits and then the greater the distance, the more you sort of have more issues with chafing because you're in the water too, you're exposed to stingers and, and those sorts of things. So you tend to apply lubricants like Vaseline or and particularly for, for even longer swims, ultra swims, cold becomes an issue. So we put on wool fat on certain areas of the body, particularly under the arms, um, around the neck and that sort of thing. It helps with retention of heat and also it helps you deal with with, with stings and abrasions. Wow. So, so you really do sort of lather up before you get in the water. Everybody's sort of yeah. lubing. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, particularly with 5K, 10K races, it just depends. When you're wearing race suits, you do need to think about you know, where, where, you, where the garment can chafe you and that sort of thing. And what are the challenges of like a really long race? Like how do you combat thirst thirst and hunger and exhaustion? It's t- taken me a while to learn this, but your body can hold around you know, enough energy to keep you going for around probably an hour. and It's around about an hour and 40, hour and 45 minutes or so, they say, and then and then you sort of deplete those reserves and then you start start drawing on fat reserves. So I guess uh, for a, a long distance race, you do need to think about nutrition and, you know, and that typically involves electrolytes. 
sports drinks, gel shots, sort of stuff that's going to provide you with energy and immediate energy as well. Is it like riding there where like, you know, when I'm driving around close to my home, there's bicycle riders Mm. and then there'll be a support car and that support car will have a whole bunch of stuff. Do you similarly have like a support boat that has all of those supplies that you need or how do you, obviously you don't carry them on you. I think you can do, yeah. So like a lot of swimmers do. Some people might carry uh, a gel shot in their bathers. It's an energy, energy goo. Similar to what cyclists use, same thing. Yeah, because you're in the water, you can't you can't carry a water bottle really, you know. So so they'll, they'll tend to carry those. Um, some people might utilise those over five k's. With some of the ten k races, people will will need to stop and have a drink. They will either have um, a support ski. Sometimes they can follow the swim around the course. That's sort of a bit more unusual. But otherwise, they they're, they're, the skis sort of uh, are on one side of the course on a particular section and the swimmers will approach their paddler uh, and they'll, they will, you know, they'll be passed a water bottle, something to eat, drink, whatever, and then they replenish themselves and, uh, and then keep swimming. But some of the marathon-type swims, though, where you have support boats and support skis following you, they, they'll be passing you drinks, um, you know, at every say every half an hour or so. Um, right. But but generally, yeah, once you go beyond that sort of, you know, that hour and, hour and 40, particularly two hours, you need to be you need to be taking some sort of sustenance. Yeah. Tell me about Rottnest Island, um, just off the coast of Perth. Why does it hold a special place in your heart? Rottnest has been a holiday destination for uh, my family. So growing up, we... We had family holidays at Rottnest, so from from you know from the earliest ages, uh, and you know my my parents went to Rottnest before we were born. It's just it's the island off off Perth. There are others, but it's the only one that's that's accessible for, for holiday makers. Really, it's it's a magic place. It's just a magic island. We we go fishing. Uh, I sort of do a lot of surfing with my brothers. Some really great breaks at Rottnest. And so we we'd load our our bikes up with board carriers and cycle to the other end of the island just in search of waves. And but my dad was a keen fisherman, so we catch crayfish, fish, squid. You know, the island itself is 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 very pretty too. There's a you know the whole flora and fauna. It's really interesting. Yeah, I love the island. You know, anyone if someone sort of mentions holiday in my family, I just say rottenness, and they all look at me. Go, can we? Can we go somewhere different? You know, you know, and then if, if they even if they say to me, Look, "Can we go overseas?" and then I'll say, "Rodnest." Rodnest. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, they think I'm pretty boring. It, it's a great escape. Yeah, and I, I like it all. Yeah. Is that why you love the Rodnest swim? Uh, the annual. Uh, open water swim that goes from Cottesloe Beach to Rottnest Island? Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, so I love the island. Uh, and then, you know, we we sort of grew up surfing the, you know, the reef breaks around Cottesloe and south of Cottesloe. Uh, so I know the start line, I know that that whole, that whole Cottesloe region and just fishing uh, with my dad. That stretch of water has a, yeah, having a, affiliation with it sitting at the obh or, or the cot hotel and you sort of look across the water you, you can see the island on any any given day you can see it in the distance and 
some days it looks a lot further than others. And, and some days you can see it really clearly, you know, and even though it's 20 kilometers away, but you'd sort of look at it and, you know, maybe you have a passing thought, think, wow. What would it be like to swim there? Well, so what makes the Rottnest Swim so unique? Because it's obviously a really popular swim every year with so many people. Well, I look, I think it's, as far as I know, it's the only, well, it's the, it's the largest open water swim of its kind in the world where you can cover the race or compete in the race in a team, so a team of four, or else you can do it as a duo. And for those silly enough, they can do it as a solo. You have, you have to have a support crew. You have to have a boat. You have to have a, a, a paddler. So it's more than just a team of four swimmers. It's your skipper. It's your paddler. It's like, it's like this big team and, and it's just so much fun being out there at whatever it is, like six o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, and you look across the water into the darkness and there's just lights everywhere. It's an amazing sight. You know, if you've got, you've got to spare half an hour at that crazy hour of the morning, go down and have a look. <laughs> <laughs> and have a look. Right. It's, it's pretty cool. The swim itself um, is a whole lot of fun. It's a beautiful stretch of water. It's magnificent. You see all sorts of sea life on the way. You tend to know a whole bunch of people when you when you're going over because there's boats everywhere. It's very cool. So. It's such. It sounds like such a social activity and similar. My father, as I was growing up, my father was always involved in the Hash House Harriers, which is sort of a similar version, uh, a lot of running. And then it's always that beer at the end and the social gathering and chit chat and fun and banter and stuff that happens at the end that just makes it such a fantastic club and activity to be involved with. Now, can you take me back to 2014 race day for Rottnest Swim? What was the weather like? Do you remember that morning as you were getting ready for that solo swim that you were going to do to Rottnest? It was pristine race conditions. Look, and those sort of conditions don't come around that often. The winds were offshore, so it was blowing easterly. And that's just fantastic for a, for a Rottnest Swim. You know, it helps move you towards the island. Fabulous. Had your family come to see you off that morning? Yeah, look, I did have a couple of family members down there. My immediate family, they got the ferry to Rottnest, so they were going to the start, or sorry, going to the finish line. And did you feel like you were in good shape for the race? Like, how were you feeling at that time? So this is 2014. Yeah, I, I was I was probably as good a condition as what I've ever been for the swim. I don't think I've ever been better prepared. You'd done the you'd done the swim before, hadn't you? Several times at that point. This was my seventh solo. Started started doing the event twenty eight years ago in in teams. I started doing it in teams before with my brothers, and and then you know one year, sort of team sort of wasn't going to happen, so I just rolled up and did it on my own. You know, look, I, I was I was excited. I, I was in I was in pretty good shape. Um, I'd had some good lead up races, and you were confident. Yeah, I was confident. Did you meet with your skipper and your um, paddle boarder before you got into the water? Like, is there a little huddle and a team, you know, coordination? Yeah. So, so I meet my paddler um, down the beach. You've got to have a system worked out. The swimmers they go off the beach, and then you've got to meet your paddler at about five hundred meters out. And it's a bit chaotic. There's paddlers out there also waiting for the waves after you. The trick is to spot your paddler as soon as you can. So once you've got your paddler, you, you then swim for another 500 metres out of the 1K mark. And that's when the boats, the, the support boats can come in and pick up there or identify their paddler and swimmer. Those connections are critically important. If you, if you don't find your paddler and then don't find your skipper, then you've got to wait at the Lewin. Um, and I think you're given about 15 minutes to, to find your support boat. Um, otherwise, your day's over. 
All right, then. Now, can you walk me through that race and how it started? We're sort of lining up, just looking across, because it, it, it's dark at that point too. You're swimming out into the darkness and you, you're going to see a bunch of these boats in the, you know, are out at the 1K mark and there's boats everywhere. There's lights on, all lights on the water and when the gun goes off and, and there's, a whole, you know, there's a whole bunch of excitement <laughs> with that and then you're just in the mix and there's arms and legs going everywhere and um, you try not to get kicked or whatever <laughs> um, and you're just sort of in the in the pack and out you go and and I just get out to the 500 metre mark and I just start screaming my paddler's name <laughs> hoping he's going to find me. <laughs> So having talked about a great, having this race plan and everything, mine just turns into this, it turns into a bit of a mess really. Anyway, so I picked up my paddle. That was, that was all good. So 500 metres, was, things were going okay. We, we found our boat. That part of it was good. Uh, and then, um, then I just, you know. Swam and swam and swam. <laughs> difference between this one and, and previous years uh, was that the water temperature was cooler and I didn't, I wasn't aware of this going into the swim and I don't think anyone really thought about it or didn't know it and they sort of made comment about this after the race. But so the water temperature had dropped by two degrees. They sort of said overnight. So it was around, I, from memory, it was around about 21. For me particularly, it was enough to make a difference and in hindsight, too, it was probably the leanest I'd, I'd ever been for a race. I think I was too lean. You're talking small margins, but the margins really matter. And mm. uh, so I started getting cold early in the swim. Now, let's let's talk briefly about hypothermia when swimming. I understand that a person can get hypothermia in summer waters, not just cold waters, and that it's defined medically as the core body temperature dropping to below 35 degrees. And I think they have terms for it. So moderate hypothermia is when your body temperature drops below 32 and severe is when it drops below 28. And signs that you could be becoming hypothermic include uncontrollable shivering and numbness, loss of simple coordination like swimming, stroke changes, weakness in arms and legs, a clenched jaw and maybe some difficulty in speaking. And sometimes a person's hands can almost become like claws. So as you were swimming along that long distance ocean race, which is, you know, 20 kilometres in length, did you have any of those symptoms, John? Yeah, I did. I didn't have any extreme symptoms, um, but I just noticed I'm getting cold. The coldness, um, yeah, it just sort of wears away at you. It, it sort of it creeps into your body gradually. It sort of can take over your core so you, and, and you do feel that. Um, I had been hypothermic before before that race. So I had been hypothermic in a couple of rotto swims before that. I was just noticed I was getting cold. And I mean, that starts with just feeling the shivers and it's exposure. As you're saying, Lana, like the, the water temperature actually doesn't have to be that cold. But when you're in the water for two, three hours, and that's what happened that day. So what happened? So you just forged on or how did you recognize it at the time and and say oh gosh i i'm too cold no i didn't for whatever reason i don't when i when i sort of i become hypothermic i don't have those sort of telltale signs of of stroke sort of falling out of place and i can keep it together and i mean up to that point it never really been an issue like like nothing 
nothing bad had ever happened and I'd never never not completed a race. So I guess in, in my head, um, I was getting cold. I knew that. With that, though, I was, I was labouring. Like I was having to work harder to maintain the pace I wanted to maintain. I knew that. I could feel it. I was having to work harder. So this is about two hours in, right? You've been swimming for about two hours. By two hours, I was pretty cold. Yeah, I didn't think it was it was ever going to be a problem. So what? So what happened next? Because that hypothermia then caused real strain on your heart. So what happened as you were swimming? When your body gets that cold, your heart's having to work a lot harder to keep you warm. And I guess it's in a stage in the race where. I was also pushing myself because I was laboring. I was having to push myself. Back in those days too, I was prone to surging. I could sort of go and burst. I could decide to sort of, you know, sort of put the hammer down and, and really, you know, go for sections. Um, and that, anyway, so look, I've, I've sort of got a bit smarter in my older age and I don't do that anymore. But during that race, I, I was surging at points. Anyway, it's basically just uh, my heart was, was working really hard to keep me warm. I was just working really hard and with that I pushed the heart into spasm. It was at that point that I suffered a hypothermic induced heart attack. So what did you experience in the water? Did you stop swimming or did you keep going? I kept going but at that what happened was that to, I was about the 12 kilometre mark so I'd been going it was around three hours and I, I was starting to labour like the labour became more intensive but I was under so much duress anyway. Like at that point, you've sort of you're just pushing yourself along, like like you know, in any distance race. And there was a, a distinct moment where, and I look, I had sort of described it as a bit like a shudder. It seemed to me, and and actually to my support boat said this as well that I I seemed to be going along at a you know what was an okay speed, and then I virtually just stalled. So my support crew looked at me. Um, and my, my speed just dropped off. Yeah, I had no power. I had a com- like complete loss of power. That that point, I just thought I'd just run out of energy. And in my very first rotness swim, that actually happened. The, the, uh, and that I guess at that point, you're just drawing on. Well, you draw. You know, you sort of draw on experiences, and you're sort of thinking, well, okay. I remember my first swim. You know, um, I had no idea about the distance. I went flat out like like a crazy man for the first the first ten k's or whatever, and then the grand piano just falls from the sky and lands on me, and that's what happened. You know, um, you know, it took me hours and hours to finish the back half of the race, and it, so I thought a similar thing was happening to, happening to me this time. I've just run out of puff. Um, I'll just go along. I'll just keep moving, and when the drink stop comes around, I have a drink, and then I'll get some energy again, and. I'll find something and I'll, I'll, I'll find some energy and then keep going. But that never happened. So I guess I just kept plodding along and I was plodding. A couple of guys sort of, who I do know, they sort of pulled up alongside me and they wanted to race. <laughs> and I was just, I just thought, oh, just mate, let, leave me be. And by the, within the next kilometre, so within 15 minutes, then I started suffering pulmonary edema. Let's talk about pulmonary edema. So the most common cause of pulmonary edema is congestive heart failure where the heart cannot keep up with the demands of the body and as a result, fluid collects in the air spaces of the lungs, which makes breathing difficult. How did you know or did you know that you had pulmonary edema? No. What symptoms did you notice? I started coughing once I lost all power over the next 15 minutes. I started coughing. It was at that point then my lungs were filling up with uh, sputum or with, you know, 
I guess that's an expression when they say the lungs don't fill in with blood, but it's um, it's like a red foam. And I guess it's your, the coughing actions trying to trying to get rid of the, the stuff out of your lungs. But the coughing is just it's just intense. It's just nonstop because you're face down on the water. Anyway, I learned that you can swim and cough at the same time. Seriously? Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> so, in, you know, and then you just, in, in between that, you just take breaths. But then I, I was coughing this stuff and then, you know, and then look, I, I would stop. I, I was stopping less. So I, I guess, you know, you go into that zone that where I just had to conserve all energy. I didn't, I wasn't communicating with my paddler much at all. Um, look, I'm coughing. He probably didn't notice he didn't know me as a swimmer that's when it becomes important that you I guess you've got a crew that, you know, know, you, that know you know you know your yeah. mindset know if you're experiencing difficulty whatever you know and so John I have to ask this question John Aussie males are known to be pretty headstrong and not ask for help when they need it are you one of these men that just you know I'm fine I'm fine leave me be why I quietly drown on my own sputum I didn't think perhaps I was but in that sort of situation, yeah, probably. You're just trying to deal with it. So you just, you've got to park stuff. You've got to box it. You've got to park it and then we'll deal with it later. And so that's what I was doing. Wow. It's just intense. Okay. So you're just swimming and swimming and swimming. Now, you were coming now up to, what, five and a half hours of the water. Are you getting closer to rottenness? Are you almost there? I remember being oh, still a few k's off from the island. Look, and I was that that I was I was really struggling. Like the speed had dropped off. My brother had jumped in the water, and he was swimming alongside me. They could see that I was struggling, and maybe they thought I wasn't going to finish. I, you know, and then but anyway, he jumped in, and that was you know, sort of like, well, come on, come on, keep going, come on, keep going. Get together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, and gosh. so. So he just, he was swimming, he was swimming alongside me for, for quite a section of it, you know, and just as brothers do, you know, come on, just. Yeah, come on, hang in there, you're almost there, you're almost there, you're almost on the beach, keep going. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're hypothermic, you're having a heart attack and have been for two hours and you've got pulmonary edema with your lungs filling up with fluid and, <laughs> but John's going to finish the race. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I had I just had no idea. I had no idea that that that's what was happening. I just thought I was cold, yeah. I was tired, and maybe I was coughing because I inhaled seawater. That yeah. was sort of running through my head. And, and even when I when I stopped for a drink, cough, the stuff that was coming out of my lungs was the same color as the the, the sports drink. Being that cold became less of an issue. I was dealing with the coughing and the other stuff by that point, you know. But I remember um, I was a couple of k's off Philip Rock, which is once you make it to Philip Rock, it's like the gateway to Thompson's Bay, gateway to the island. It's a, it's a beautiful place to be at the swim. Once you get to that, once you get to the rock and you know that you've only got two kilometres to go, you're in the bay. Yeah. And then for me, so I know once I get to 18, the water just in my head becomes warmer. And it actually is. It's actually a little bit warmer in the bay. So I just, you know, I thought once I get to there, I, I, I'm, I'm home. Anyway, so... I was getting close, and I remember Kath jumped. So my my long suffering wife, she she jumped off the boat and swims up to me, and she, you know she had some jelly beans or whatever, and she's she's trying to get me to stop, you know. I love your wife already. Oh, <laughs> it's just oh, it's just it was, yeah, it wasn't some of my best behaviour really. I, I didn't like I sort of I didn't really stop for you know I didn't 
there wasn't any thank you, that's for sure. I was just, I was sort of just trying to keep my head down and kept swimming, you know. And then I, I, I got to Philip Rock and just sort of made it to the finish line. Um, Were you able to walk out of the surf onto the beach? Yeah, yeah, I was. I'm typically not so great when I sort of have to go vertical after being horizontal for so long, but I was trying to compose myself as best as I could. Kath had said to me before the race, because usually when I come out of longer distance swims, I'm, I'm pretty untidy. I sort of stagger a bit. It's like I've had a few too many drinks and then I start veering left and have been known to take a barrier out or two and fall in the sand and then get up and it's... <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's just it's sort of just the blood going, you know, going to your legs and, and I sort of have yeah. challenges with that and your hip flexors are all tight. So I, I remember she said to me, look, when we finish, when you finish the race, can you come in and... Look, it'd just be nice if you could just stand up like everyone else does and walk across the line. Um, give us a smile. We'd like a smile. Um, and because the girls, your daughters are going to be there. I'm going to be there. I'm going to, you know. We've been waiting for hours. Yeah. And the daughter's going to be there. And then we'd like to have a photo. And, at the, you know, in the race compound there, you know, and I said, okay, all right, all right. So that's as silly as it sounds, but I, that's what I was thinking about when I came out of the water. I thought, all right, okay, get yourself together. So I did, you know, and so I thought I was doing a pretty good job. It was a little bit of a Look, i got to say, John, this is dedicated husband work. Honestly, <laughs> this is dedication. <laughs> and, and anyway, so, and I saw them, so they, you know, the race finished, and so I went up to them, and anyway, and I'm putting on the best smile, and then someone's got a camera or whatever, and there's a photo, and, and then one of the nurses just made a beeline for me, and next minute she's on my arm, and I was – trying to shake it loose and what had she seen what had that nurse observed well yeah well, that's when she saw she saw the pink stuff coming out of my mouth so she knew that something was wrong which in hindsight was probably pretty fortunate that she saw that i sort of had a particular tree i wanted to go down and sit under and then i said i'm fine i'm fine it's all good you know um and she wouldn't leave me alone she was just on me and then another one um came up and she sort of took my other arm and I just remember then I looked across at Kath and then she's glared at me and I thought, oh, boy, I'm in a lot of trouble now. <laughs> and then I went over to the – just went over to the medical tent and um, there, then they wanted to check me out. And so they took me up to Rottnest um, Hospital and I was, in the, I was in the hospital and then they were thinking that they knew that I was my, – my core temperature was, you know – was really low. Um, so they knew that you had that hypothermia just based on your core temperature. They knew that I had hypothermia. They also identified that I, I uh, was, you know, been suffering from pulmonary edema. They were saying that, look, you'll be okay. Look, you're just going to spend a couple of hours here. We're going to warm you up and whatever else, and we're just going to just observe you for a bit, and then you'll be able to go down to the pub and have a drink with your, with your mates. And so I was thinking, terrific. That five or six hours wasn't in vain. Yeah, that's right. And so, and I said, I was looking at the watch. I said, well, we need to hurry up. You know? um, so they had me hooked up at that stage. Um, and then things got a bit more serious around me. I just noticed the mood in the room. It changed. We were having a bit of fun, having a bit of fun there. And and they sort of, there's things just seemed to get a bit more serious. And it was at that point one of the doctors came up to me and he said, we think there may be an issue with your heart. Yeah, that was just a real, um, um, yeah, that was a tough moment, yeah. 
Um, and then not long after that, they said, look, we're going to have to airlift you back to Perth to Fremantle Hospital. Did uh, your wife, was she there with you in the hospital or was she uh, waiting for you to come out and have a beer? She was with me in the hospital. So she sort of, a, she knew about that. She sort of heard that. She knew that there was a, there was an issue, there could be issues with my heart. She had to sort of go and find our daughters, had to find three daughters. And I think we'd had a house booked on the island. And at that point, like my support boat didn't know, my paddler didn't know. My three daughters were with some friends of ours. Anyway, so she just had to, had to get to them just get things organised, I guess, you know. And um, mm. and then I went into the, they put me into the ambulance, take me to the to the airfield at, at Rottnest. And then we were driving along and we were we were looking for Kath at that point because we thought we'll see her just, you know, Rotto's a pretty small place and there's only bicycles there too. There's no, no, no cars. And anyway, so we thought we'll, we'll find her on the way to the airport, which we did. So she came with me in the in the RFDS plane. Do you remember um, getting onto that plane? Oh yeah, yeah, I do. I remember all that. And by that stage, it was like like things were things were sort of okay. I remember even having a few laughs with the ambulance guys, whatever else. I was sitting by the airfield waiting for the plane, and all I had was robe on, and I was sort of probably looking a bit indecent from the from the from the back end. Um, and I remember, I remember I remember having to go to the toilet. I was thinking like it's just a it's a bit of bitumen in, in amongst this low-lying scrub you know that's the right that's the right <laughs> airfield you just imagine anyway i remember i had i was all hooked up they had me with the some sort of stuff that was being fed into me and and i was carrying stuff and i had to I had to walk up to the side of the, 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 the runway and I'd relieve myself and anyway people were still laughing about the situation and um anyway and then i got on the plane yeah had you ever been in an rfds plane before no what was your impression when you climbed on? Oh, look, look, it's pretty amazing. It's um, it's like a little hospital in the in the sky, you know. And so they yeah, had me little intensive care unit. So they had me hooked up on ECG, which the whole thing was just it was just transferable. The doctor was just you know she was monitoring me the whole way. Yeah, it was like you know it's just very impressive, impressive setup, terrific. Like you you know you feel you feel safe. I was looking out the window, having a look at all the beautiful bays. Yeah, I'd never seen it from the air before. Never seen rottenness from the air, so that was really cool. Uh, oh, new dimension! Yeah, just making the most of it. <laughs> now, when you arrived in Perth and were transported to hospital, what did the doctors say? What did they say they felt had occurred, and what was the diagnosis? They they took me into emergency at Fremantle Hospital. This one doctor, you know, after having sort of looked at me, they were looking at my ECG and had taken more bloods as well at that point. And then she came up to me and said, look, we think you've had a heart attack. No one had mentioned those words, you know. Yeah, first you just don't, you, you can't accept that, you know. It's hard, that's a hard thing to deal with. And you sort of thinking, hang on, that, no, that's not me. I was, you know, I'm a pretty fit guy, um, you sure? So then I was um, taken over to um, the coronary care unit. Then the specialist looked at me. The head of cardiology, he came to see me. What did he say? He confirmed that. Yeah, and he said, look, you, you've had a heart attack. John, did they think that you were lucky to have survived that swim? Because if you've had a heart attack, you know, at the 12-kilometre mark and you have continued for the next eight kilometres to finish that race, 
Did the doctors think that there was a possibility that you might have not actually left the water? Uh, yeah, they were surprised um, and that, that was sort of said to me. Um, but they were also very concerned that that I pro- most probably caused a lot of damage to my heart. But they sort of prepared me at that point. The cardiologist, had he said to me, look, because you had, you know, because you continued on for another whatever it was, two hours 40, he said, you may... Or you will have caused significant, you know, significant damage. So he said, "Look, we will probably have to put a stent or a number of stents in." I remember looking at my heart on the big screen, and he's gone. And he's looking at it. I remember him saying, "Wow!" I said, uh, "Dr. Kenner, is that is that a good wow? Is that a bad wow?" And he he sort of just paused. He just said, uh, "I think that's a good wow." You know, you're just a really lucky, you're a lucky man. You're a really lucky guy. Your arteries are pristine. So it was the cold. It was that cold then that had really impacted. Yeah, I could have damaged, I could have damaged the heart. He said, look, this is not the conclusive test at all. He said, well, we've still got to do a couple of other things with you. Um, he said, but wow, he said, look, this looks really positive. So he's, but I do remember him saying, he said, you, you know, you're a lucky guy. Uh, you are one lucky man, John. You are seriously lucky. I remember they said to me, you go and buy yourself a lottery ticket. I wanted to ask, was it a long rehab process? It sort of took me a few months. You know, I saw an exercise physiologist who who mapped a few things out for me um, and really, you know, and told me a few really important things to distinguish between chest pain and heart pain, um, just so I understood that. That gave me a, a, a gave me some real confidence. The event sort of just it just knocked me around, like physically, um, and mentally too. But it knocked me around physically. I was, I was, you know, just really taxed and wrecked for for quite a while, for a number of weeks. I, I sort of, so I just started building it up over time. You know, just started getting back into things, getting back into life. But you, and then I had to, you know, you've got to go through various stress tests that I had to do. They just wanted to make sure everything was okay and. They, they put me on a running machine and I was petrified. I was really worried. Were you worried you were going to have another heart attack? Yeah, I was. So you went from almost being invincible to feeling very vulnerable. And how did you cope with that? For me, it was just I just sort of had to come to grips with things weren't going to be the same anymore. I, I think anyone that sort of has a has a sickness or an illness or gets, you know, has, has injuries, I, it's just something you, I was just trying to deal with on a day-by-day basis really you know and they did say they did say to me the one thing was that we'll we'll get you back into swimming so my cardiologist said we're going to we're going to get you back you know time's a great thing you know um with time and and just taking baby steps you get you improve you get better and um with that comes confidence you start doing a bit more and a bit more and a bit more and then you think hey I know they told me I'm never allowed to do rotness again, but, <laughs> but you know. And but I, I think I, I might. I think I might. Like it's been a couple of years, and I'm feeling pretty good. And John, how many times have you swum rotness since 2014? So we've done another four solos since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't the favourite guy in the house at all. Didn't have too many fans. And you do things smarter and better and. I'm better prepared for it. And I'm very, very mindful if if I do get cold. So these days, I you know I race with sports drinks and all my stuffs at you know at around 40 degrees. The whole raft of things I do. 
Mm. Um, it's not cavalier. Do you think that your heart attack um, and this whole experience in 2014 uh, with uh, first the hypothermia, then the heart attack and then the pulmonary edema, do you think that it's changed your outlook or your perspective on life? For sure. I, I, I think if, you know, anyone that goes through, you know, something, you know, pretty significant as far as health-wise goes and i got friends that, geez, they've had a lot more serious um, things happen to them. And, uh, yeah, it, it does make you more appreciative and, and certainly you sort of does make you sort of, I guess, seize the moment a bit. It was really good for me, like, in a, you know, in a lot of ways. It just gives you more insight into, you know, people that are dealing with sickness or health issues and injuries. And, you know, I look at it in a positive way. It's been, been good for me. Look, I've got to be a bit sensible and sometimes I think I'm a, young, a lot younger than what I am. And I guess I train with people a lot younger than what I am too. And I sort of want to make the most of my able years. You know, I'm, I do enjoy swimming. I enjoy the camaraderie of it. And I sort of do like racing too. I, I still do it. Even after this one, it's sort of like suggested, hey, this is probably, you, you, what about now? Why don't you just leave it alone now? Just walk away from it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, when's your retire now? <laughs> yeah, what about, what about now? now, John? What about now? <laughs> uh, listen, it's been it's been great talking to you, John. Um, thank you for telling your story, and yeah, I'm glad you walked it out of the water that day. I am. Thank you, and, I, and look, you know, and I'm really, really thankful to Royal Flying Doctor Service. If I had walked away from that race compound, and the nurses hadn't hadn't got hold of me, and I hadn't gone in the RFDS route. Um, things could have been a whole lot different, you know. And I was, I was also very lucky that whilst the, the hypothermia caused the issue, it also protected my heart. It did have did have a couple of things go right for me that day. Thank you, John. Thanks, Lana. You have to show me Rottnest Island at some point when I'll when I'm next over in WA. I'm not going to swim. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. My name's Sylvia. I think the podcasts are really good. I've been listening to all of them. I particularly like the fact that you hear the whole story from the point of view of the people that were involved. Yeah, my favourite podcast.